So this is a case from the Momotan, case 3. Gute is one finger. The case. Whenever he was asked about Zen, Master Gute simply stuck up one finger. He had a boy attendant whom a visitor asked, what kind of teaching does your master give? The boy held up one finger, too. Hearing of this, Gute cut off the boy's finger with a knife. As the boy ran away, screaming with pain, Gute called to him. When the boy turned his head, Gute stuck up one finger. The boy was suddenly enlightened. When Gute was about to die, he said to the assembled monks, I received this one finger's end from Tendalim. I've used it all my life, but have not exhausted it. Having said this, he entered Nirvana. Mumon's commentary. The enlightenment of Gute and the boy have nothing to do with the tip of a finger. If you realize this, Tendalim, Gute, the boy, and you yourself, I all, are all run through with one skewer. The verse. All tell you made a fool out of Gute, who cut off the boy with a sharp blade. The mountain deity Kole raised his hand, and lo, without effort, great Mount Ka, with its many ridges, was split into two. week we were away as well on family vacation and I'd like to begin by thanking Keiichi for covering last Sunday and for giving a wonderful teisho. It's comforting to know that I can from time to time go away and things keep going. Some still show up. The Dharma keeps revolving. So, in this teisho, Keiichi brought up the question of meaning or purpose. The question which is which actually, for us as humans, have been in the back of our minds for thousands of years throughout our existence, trying to figure out where do we come from? What are we doing here? And maybe more than anything, what happens next? Where do we go from here? Who are we? What are we? And most of our decisions and actions originate out of a deep quest for a fitting answer to this question as we try to find our place in this world, try to make sense of it all. 
the state of humanity and the world we live in, it doesn't look like we're doing such a great job. The question itself is valid. And it is imperative that we do look at it deeply. That we try to clarify it. And most of us can agree that conflicts, the creation of unnecessary suffering and the destruction of our planet do not constitute a fitting answer or provide a long-lasting meaning for our existence. But again, looking at all that, we get a good indication that we need to examine the ways we try to answer this fundamental question. How do we go about trying to find meaning? What do we do in the process? journey, the quest. Our frantic decisions and actions are showing us that it's time to reconvene. Stop being moved by impulsive energies. And just observe for a while. Get acquainted with the moment. With what's happening. Study how it works, study how we work, which of course brings us to practice, that's what we do. But how do we practice? How do we do that? How do we make sure that we don't practice in the same way that we do everything else or that we have done everything else up to the moment we have decided to step into the practice. So in terms of practice, what is the purpose? What is the final destination? How do you view that personally? It's not enough to read texts or books about it. We have to clarify, verify for ourselves. What does it mean? Commonly, the, the practice is commonly described as a path that leads to liberation, a way to free ourselves from emotional entanglements so we can stop perpetuating old and harmful habits, a way to merge with the fundamental truth of an ever-changing reality, ever-changing reality. And then lead a life that is in alignment with impermanence. And Buddhism, of course, is known as a way of transforming ignorance and suffering into wisdom and compassion and action. But as true as all these words are, they are not more than a bunch of words, organized in a specific way piled up together to give us some kind of a description. So as true as these words are, they can only point but cannot reveal. Our words 
words by themselves will not bring a potential into fruition. Sometimes the more we fool ourselves to believe that we're actually embodying these qualities, the less we do. Sometimes the more we read about it, the less we do. Or the more we talk about it. But we get a sense that we are doing it because we talk about it, because we read about it. Does it really work? Does it work for you? Once in a while, we need to stop and look at what practice is. We need to be reminded that the practice with all its intricate traditions and training methods. There's a lot to do, a lot we do with the practice, in the practice. And all that, always, comes down to today. Just today. Just this more. Not more and not less either. Not more in the sense that there's nothing to pile up on this moment. And not less in the sense that this moment contains an inherent continuum. This moment is unknown, is wondrous, is unlimited. This is the Buddha field we talk about. You are the most qualified person for the task. And this is the time you are asked to awaken to. It all boils down to this. You know, the purpose, the path, and the destination all converge in this moment or come to a head. But how do you view that? What does it do to you? actually recognize that this is it. This is the time. I mean, it is, it is an amazing relief to recognize that. Well, here it is. This is the moment I've been waiting for. This is the day I've been waiting for all my life. The time has come. The day has arrived. What a relief isn't it? Magic. And then, what a great responsibility it is as well. If we open up to it, and if we practice correctly and in accordance with the realization that this is it, not the concept of it, but actual realization, gut level, Understanding. No more waiting. No more pondering. But again,
Again, how do we understand that? Right? Rather than seeing this as a conclusion, doesn't mean we have arrived and that's it. We need to realize that this is an opening, opening to an opportunity or endless opportunities to experience a timeless and limitless dimension. And we need to see this as a gateway to enter what we refer to as the unknown or the great mystery. And again, even here, words can only point. Point at what? We have to roll up our sleeves, not the words. We have to roll up our sleeves and do the work. And actually practice realization rather than, rather than ponder it. We say the word, you know, at the beginning of Zazen, we chant, now I return to oneness. Do we do it? What does it mean to return to oneness? When you chant it, does it encourage you to actually practice Zazen correctly? Turn to oneness means to turn the attention away from the differentiating thinking process and towards an experience of unity. Not a thought of unity, experience of unity. Which we practice through maintaining the stillness of the body. We don't move. And through sensing the constant ebb and flow of the breath the core of our practice. It begins and ends there. If we don't maintain that, if we don't attend to that correctly, then all the other aspects of practice will just fall apart or will be an illusion of unpracticing. But I'm not. Or I am practicing something else. Practicing deceiving myself to be a practitioner. Sounds good, but is it so? So, how are we really following basic guidelines of meditation? Are you proactively engaged in drawing energy away from the thinking process, or do you spend most of your zazen period being engaged in thinking? It's always so helpful to, to work with beginners, and I, I have the, the privilege and the opportunity to do it often. It's amazing because it does put things in perspective, because when I give basic instructions, I listen to the instructions as well. And I ask myself, am I doing it? Because if I'm not doing it, I cannot say it. I need to practice it to be able to share it. We need 
need to remember what it is to be a beginner. Because we are beginners. All the time. It's not bad to be a beginner. It's actually wonderful. But we forget. In the beginning, we do pay attention a lot more. Because it's new. But then after some time, well, it's not new anymore. Because I've done it many times. Or well, I've practiced for many years. I know what I'm doing. Do you? I don't know. Every time I see it, every time I see it, it's brand new. I don't know what I will encounter. I don't know how will I work with it. I stay curious, I stay open. Brand new. We have to take the time to practice correctly and to bring the attention back to the breath and to look at the spaces between the thoughts. Even if there are many of them, still there are spaces. Because in the space between the thoughts, we can meet infinity face to face. And there we encounter a continuum that is fundamentally inseparable from this body that is, has its butt parked on a cushion for a while. And all it takes, all it takes is just Directing the attention to the totality, to the singular totality of this. And in an instant, everything is revealed. Everything is revealed. Now when we try to describe this experience or experiences using words like beautiful, Magnificent or amazing. It doesn't work. That would be like admiring a wild animal locked in a cage. Right? Its true beauty is revealed when it's left alone to roam free. Undisturbed, undefined, unknown. It wants to be left alone, unknown. And when it is left alone unknown, it does exactly what it needs to do. It knows what to do without knowing that it's not, it knows what to do. Well, we want to mess with everything. We want to figure out everything. We want to think it to death. And it's caged. First part of this koan says that every time Master Gute was asked about Zen, he simply stuck up one finger. Every question. So you come in with a question: What is the meaning of Buddhism? What is the meaning of my life? Why am I here? You raise a finger. That's it. There it is. 
want, does it work? Do you dismiss it? Why would you do that? What was the meaning? Was he pointing at the fundamental truth or was he embodying it? Because when we see a finger, the tendency is to look at what it is pointing at. Or to try to think it about the meaning of this. What is the meaning of raising a finger? What is he trying to tell me? So holding up a finger, is it a question or is it an answer? Right? You say it's a question, you'll be frantically running around looking for the answer. And if you say it's an answer, of course you run the risk of putting an end to your practice. I got it. I have figured it out. put an end to your practice, you will experience endless and agonizing stagnation. Painful stagnation. Either way, either way, you'll be drifting apart from the Buddha Dharma and will not embody Buddha's one finger zen. And here again, thoughts cannot penetrate. And words cannot describe. And Kuti himself actually experienced that. There's an interesting story about how he himself was awakened by this one finger's end. According to his biography, Kuti lived on a mountain when he was young, practicing zazen alone in a hermitage. One day, a nun called Jisai, which means true world, happened to stop by at his hut. And back in those days, it was customary for guests and hosts to take off their hats as a gesture of greeting. But this nun did not do so. She did not follow that tradition. She simply entered the hut, walked around Gute's seat three times without taking off the hat, without keeping it on. Then she stood in front of him and said, if you can say a word that satisfies me, I will take off my bamboo hat and make a bow. Gute was perplexed. He could not say anything. So the nun did not bow or remove her hat. Now the nun challenged him three times this way, and still Gute could not open up his mouth, could not respond. So as she was preparing to leave, Gute, worried about the lateness of the hour, got dark outside. He said, It's already dark. Why don't you stay here for the night? And the nun said again, if you can say something, I'll stay. And again, he was dumbstruck, could not open up his mouth. The nun departed. After she left, Gute was terribly ashamed. Chided himself. I have the form of a man, but I like a man's spirit. I could not answer even one word upon her examination. So he made up his mind to start on a journey to search for a good Zen master and to undergo severe Zen training. During the last night, before he was about to leave, Gute had a strange dream. The reigning deity of the locality appeared to him and said, Do not leave. In a few days, 
And incarnate Bodhisattva will come here and preach to you about the Dharma. And so it happened. The very next day, the Zen master Tenryu came to the monastery, or the hut where was. Gute welcomed him with great respect and related in detail the story of the nun, his own decision, and the ensuing dream. Upon hearing this, Tenryu stuck up one finger. At an instant, Gute experienced deep enlightenment. So what happened? What happens at the moment? You feel totally stuck, perplexed, frustrated, and you encounter this. And what happens at that moment has everything to do with the maturity of your practice and with your sincerity. You deep in sleep wonder anything. But if you are close to the edge, if you really truly are fed up with what you do, with the way you live your life, then yes, it all collapses, it all falls apart. The facade, that is. And then at that moment, all is revealed. But I think we have to be fed up. We have to know, we have to trust that there is another way. And it's an experience. You know, when, when we try to think our way into the heart of Zen, we can't penetrate it. And then even when we try to not think our way into it, still, we encounter a fortress. Or at least it feels this way. And it keeps happening because all we do is just engage in different variations of mental construct buildings. And then what we do is try to replace one with another. The old construct doesn't work. I'll put in a new construct in its place. But then that doesn't work too. Then he's asking us to shake it up, to really scrap it all, scrap it, leave nothing, begin fresh and new, and then do the work with the most basic ingredients of our existence. The most basic ingredients, breath, right, most basic ingredients. Walking, sitting, lying down. That's it. That's all that is needed to do the work. 
We don't need statues. We don't need incense. We don't need robes. They're all helpful tools. We don't need it to do the work. But they're very helpful. What we need is what we are at our core, which is really a strange way to say that because we don't need it, we are it. The need is more on the level of recognition. When we were away, <coughs> we went to visit uh, Assateague Island. It's a place well known for its population of wild horses. These are actually feral horses, which means they are descendants of domestic animals that have reverted, reverted to a wild state and learn how to survive the scorching heat, abundant mosquitoes, stormy weather, and poor quality food found on this remote windswept, windswept barrier island. And it was, it was quite an experience seeing these horses in their natural habitat. And I was looking at that and thinking about this in relation to the essence of Zen practice. How it offers to distill each one of us to our most fundamental state. And how it can remind us of our original face. I think like these horses, who found their way back to their wild and untamed existence, we also can learn to become less domesticated and find our way back to our original state of being. Of course, it doesn't mean to go back to living in caves and hunting animals for food, but it does mean to connect to an innate, innate, energy that pulsates in us as it does with these horses. Somehow they found their way back to it. They went from being taken care of to taking care of themselves. From being sheltered to trusting the earth to trusting that all they need is right there. And it says, I read about it a little bit, it says that they changed their behavior. They actually look different too. They look like cows with their patches of colors. Black and white and brown. They look different than domesticated holes. I think that the wildness is in us has become subdued by giving in to an illusion of separateness. And then we became paralyzed by the fear of losing the illusion. In our original and wild state, we are none other than a continuum that was never born and will never die. Of course, because the continuum takes on a temporary 
shape and form, it seems as if there is a need to keep it secure and protect it from annihilation to temporal existence. But if it's all we connect with, then of course we will want to protect it. And that fear itself raises the familiar questions of where do we come from, what are we doing here, and what happens next? That fear raises the question of meaning. You look at these wild horses, they don't wonder about meaning. They are meaning. They are the meaning we wonder about. And the meaning manifests in the way they chew, in the way they walk around, in the way they run, in the way they drink water, in the way they lie down to go to sleep, and in the way they die. All those moments are one moment, one continuous existence. We need to work on that. We need to work on clarifying this basic existence. We call it to clarify the fundamental point in Zen terms. But to clarify the fundamental point does not mean to try and answer these questions in a way that satisfies the mind. It's just a temporary fix that the mind will very quickly produce more Clarify the fundamental point means to go back home, to put your feet up and soak in the internal breeze. Enjoy it. And everyone has equal potential to find their way back home and be cooled by that eternal breeze. But nobody can do it for another. We had. In a fascicle from Shobo Genzo called Bendoa, Dogen wrote, All Buddhas, without exception, confirm their having realized the state of enlightenment by demonstrating their ability to directly transmit the wondrous Dharma. As embodiment of the truth, they have employed an unsurpassed, inconceivably marvelous, method, which functions effortlessly, as it does with the horses, we saw, effortlessly. It is simply this method that Buddhas impart to Buddhas, without deviation or distortion, and their meditative state of delight in the truth is its standard and measure. That's being at home with the feet up. As they take pleasure wherever they go to spiritually aid others while in such state, they treat this method of theirs, namely the practice of seated meditation, as the proper and most straightforward, straightforward gate for entering the way. Back to Zazen. Always back to Zazen. 
daily. No matter what we are, no matter what we do, we tend to the practice. And then he says, people are already abundantly endowed with the Dharma in every part of their being. We're born this way. But until they do the training, it will not emerge. And unless they personally confirm it for themselves, there is no way for them to realize what it is. That is always the bottom line. We are already Buddhas. It's not a question. These horses already had wildness in them, although they were domesticated. But they never forgot it. Somehow, they found a way back to that. And I'm sure if you ask one of them, they'll tell you it was tough. Many probably died. Because they were just walking around waiting for food to show up, or it didn't show up. That means I gotta go get my own food. There's no box with hay in it, or a pail with water. Apparently, they've adapted to drink partially salted water. The body somehow found a way to do that. They look actually bloated because of that. But they figured it out. Primarily, they found a way back to their original state. So the second part of this koan, Master Gute, that's actually talking about the young attendant who was actually looking for a shortcut and trying to write his teacher's realization without knowing how to use it skillfully. So when the visitor came to, to the monastery and asked the young boy, what kind of teaching does your master give? The boy just did the same, held up one finger. When they heard about that, he just cut off the tip of his finger. And as the boy ran away, screaming with pain, holding his hand. Gute called him, the boy turned, he held up one finger, the boy was awakened. It's like the boy was trying to use his father's circle of soap without taking the time to learn how to use it properly. He got cut. Because you cannot use your teacher's experience. You have to go get your own food. You have to make it happen. As we chant, this is the pure land, it's up to us to make it. So this is the time, this is the place, this is the person. Now do it. Mumo's commentary says, the enlightenment of Gute and the boy have nothing to do with the tip of a finger. If you realize this, then you, good day, the boy, and you yourself are all run through with one skill. He's urging you, he's 
urging us all to practice diligently, to not believe what we think, to not believe the domesticated parts of our thinking process. When you go home, put your feet up and enjoy the eternal dreams. Then the past, the present, and the future are also run through with one skill. You are Tenryu who passed on the one finger Zen to Gute. You are Gute who communicated the untamed Zen spirit by cutting off the boy's finger. And you are also the boy who is awakened in the midst of excruciating pain. It's all of you. Because it's all the continuum. third part of this coin. It says, when Gude was about to die, he said to the assembled monks, I received this one finger sent from Tenli. I've used it all my life, but have not yet exhausted it. Having said this, he passed away. No, the practice is teaching us how to be wild and free while living in a dogmatic society and while not ignoring causation or karma, while not ignoring consequences, but not being drowned by it, actually being awakened by what happened. But the key for functioning this way lies in not knowing you are functioning this way. In the same way that the horses did not know or do not know that they are doing what they're doing. And because they don't know they're doing what they're doing, they can do it perfectly. Because the mind, the thinking mind, does not get in the way. Because of that, what needs to function freely, functions freely. And not knowing, keeping all directions wide open, wide open, and never, never exhausted. It means arriving at home sitting peacefully with the feet up without concluding the journey. Because there is always the road ahead, which offers further deepening, more exploration, to keep us all in awe about this precious existence. There is lots to appreciate right now. And you know what? There will be lots more to appreciate later on. How great is that? How incredible is that? So much to be grateful. And what do we do? What do we do? What do we occupy ourselves with? What kind of nonsense we waste our lives on? 
What kind of thoughts we nurture, we feed? What kind of emotions we believe to represent who we are? That's degrading the Buddha Dharma. And that's a shame. Because that's what we call defiling the Buddha. Not the statue, not Siddhartha Gautama. You. That's how you defile yourself. The verse says, All ten you made a fool out of Gute, who cut off the boy with a sharp blade. The mountain deity Kore raised his hand, and <clears throat> lo, without effort, great Mount Kai, Ka, with its many ridges, was split in two. All ten of you made a fool out of good. Why? Why a fool? When you realize, when you truly realize, you see that it has always been this way. You see that nothing was ever given. From Shakyamuni to his first successor, Mahakashyapa did not receive anything. And yet, there is that, and there is a tradition what we all awaken to is that just who we are. And it's always been this way. It's always been this way. According to Chinese legend, Kole, a mountain deity, of great strength, divided Great Mount Kai in two. One part Mount Shuyo and the other Mount Kai. And he did that by the mere touch of his hand, thereby allowing the waters of the Yellow River to flow through. And this is a depiction of the spiritual strength which Tenryu used to shatter Gute's delusions. And then Gute used to help bring the young boy the young attendant to realization. That's the spiritual power. It's limitless. That's why Gute died without having exhaust, exhausting this, without ending anything. But with years of embodiment, Years of embodiment, years of teaching through being. Now this koan, I think sometimes is misunderstood because the only thing we see in it is just cruelty. And the boy running around with the screaming, with pain, with missing tip of a finger. 
But the heart of it is at the beginning. Every time, every time, Kudel was asked a question, he would just raise one finger. That's all. Nothing more, nothing less. Keep that in mind. 